Good morning. My name is Art Cash, elder here at River Oaks, discipleship pastor, member of the preaching team, and I'm excited to talk to you about the end of Ephesians 4 this morning. So it was, it was 1947, and the lady speaking had just finished sharing the message that God forgives. When we confess our sins, she said, God cast them into the ocean, gone forever. It was a message particularly needed in the bombed out and defeated and desolate country of Germany post-World War II. As people were filing out after her speech, a man approached her. It wasn't any ordinary man. She recognized him as a guard from Ravensbrück the concentration camp where she and her sister had been imprisoned for hiding Jews in their home. He did not remember her, but she remembered him. She remembered how in shame she had to walk by him naked. She remembered how her sister, skin and bones, died in in Ravensbrook. But now, this guard approaches her, his hand extended And he says to her, since my time at Ravensbrook, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I want to hear it from your lips. Fräulein, will you forgive me? He again extended his hand. What would you do? And Corrie ten Boom was frozen. Biblically, she knew that God commanded her to forgive. Practically, she knew from watching people who had not forgiven their enemies, she'd watched them deteriorate, be be crushed by their own bitterness and own forgiveness physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. She knew. She knew that forgiveness was not an emotion but an act of the will. So she prayed. She prayed, Jesus Help me. As she describes in her book, The Hiding Place, an incredible thing took place as she slowly shook this Nazi's guard hand. A jolt like an electric current started in her shoulder, raced down her arm, and sprang into their joined hands. Tears flooded her eyes. I forgive you, brother. She cried out, with all my heart, I forgive you. Powerful beautiful, moving account of forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, I know my own heart (laughs) and I have questions. How could she forgive something so horrible? How, How could we forgive something like that? Thankfully, scripture has truth. It has answers and we see it in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 this morning. Our main point is this and the answer to how because Christ has shown great kindness and compassion in forgiving us, we are able to do the same for one another. So I want to start in Ephesians 4.30 and read through 5.2 so we can have the flow here. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you can see how we'll walk through the passage. First, we'll talk about how Ephesians 31, 431 is a mirror on our unforgiveness. Then in verse 32, we'll see how God in Christ forgave us and how that impacts how we forgive others. Really what forgiveness is and is not. So we got to remember, we got to back up here all the way through Ephesians 4. This is written to believers. It's, It's flowing out of you've been called. Here's the calling to which you've been called. How do you now live? How do you walk? How do you do life as a Christian? Here's the truth. Jesus Christ has taken off and put away from us the old self that we see described in Ephesians 4. He's taken away that corruption, that darkness, and he's placed it on himself. And from himself, he's taken the new humanity. Robes of righteousness, put those on us. He's making us after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, by the Holy Spirit, we're going to see here how we act like we truly are. How do we do this? It starts with who are we? There's a reason I started in, in, in verse 30 and went through 5-2. We see something in verse 30, that it's possible for Christians to grieve God. We see why in 5-1 and 2. Because we have a father who loves us as children. So who is it that, that can grieve you the most? It's those that you love the most. So we see with our unchangeable, faithful God, immutable, choosing to grieve, choosing to love, knowing that those that he sets his love upon will grieve him. We can be so thankful that we worship a God who is faithful even when we're faithless. We see these sins in verse 31. And brothers and sisters, that's not how we learned Christ. But scripture is a mirror. Shows a reflection. And I don't know about you, but I've been on Zoom a lot over the past two months. I've been, I know, I've been looking at this screen, okay? And as much fun as it is looking at you, I don't, a byproduct of it is I don't like to look at me, okay? When you're in Zoom, you have a picture of you that you have to stare at for hours. So no amount of fun, virtual backgrounds, no amount of whatever Eric Mark's going to come up with this time or Ron McCaffrey, some kind of fun virtual background, it cannot hide this one fact, and that is I have resting mad face. <laughs> I... I just do. So uh, no matter any of these, these backgrounds that I put on or little filters that I put on to soften up the wrinkles and, and the blemishes or whatever, there is a setting where you can soften your appearance. It does not take away resting mad face. I will be listening to you intently and a crack forms between my two eyebrows. It's like, what is happening there with his face? And I'm just listening to you. It, it, it takes so much effort to just get to resting neutral face for me as I'm trying to, to just get neutral. That's, that feels like the biggest clown smile. And it's just this okay. resting mad face. It's, 
Oh, so it, it, nothing like Zoom, right, to make me thankful that God looks on the heart and not the outward appearance. I did finally discover there's a setting that you can, where you don't have to look at yourself. I wish I'd known that earlier. You can turn that off. But with scripture, there's no offsetting. There's no offsetting to God's word unless you close your eyes to it. And we do that at our own peril. In a passage like this, God brings us face to face with truth. What do we see most often reflected in our hearts if we're taking an honest look at it? And that's why you go to God's word. That's why you come to church, why you watch at home. To, to be faced with truth that you might otherwise want to move away from. What do you see when you look at your heart? Is it more filled with bitterness and anger or love, kindness, and compassion? You may think, Art, we've already talked about anger. We did this back in, in verse 26. This passage is different. This passage shows us the warning of a life that has these well-worn, hardened paths of anger. Let's say that you, you were listening to the earlier verse there in, in chapter 4. Be angry, don't sin. You, you ignored that. Here's the path and the pattern of a life given over to this. A life where you regularly look for reasons to stay angry to justify feelings of, of bitterness rather than uprooting them. So you could see this in, in verse 31, how they escalate even from internal to external. Bitterness, okay? It's intense resentment, hatred left to grow. It smolders. It smolders like a forest fire. It smolders like a volcano. And that's what we have with wrath and anger. This magma-like, under-the-surface way of life that's just bubbling. And from time to time, it just explodes. From inward to outward, clamor, the word you might see in your NIV is brawling. So what happens when that anger and wrath and bitterness continue to fester? You want to recruit other people into that with you. You want to make them a part of your anger. It makes you feel better about it. I'm more justified in my anger if I've got several people in this with me. Clamor necessarily leads to slander. If you want to recruit people to be on your side in your anger, you end up speaking evil about another with, a, with a, an attempt to injure them, to ruin their name. Malice kind of sums all this up with a, the bitter heart. Malice is, is malignant, what it literally means. It's, it's a cancer of, of evil to injure another. Now, you... You hear these and you may think, well, thank God that that does not sound like me. I'm, I'm, I don't have a malignant, wicked, wicked desire to injure another. That's, that's not me, Art. We can scoot along here. Well, I just, there, there needs to be a warning. We don't just wake up one day and decide, I'm bitter. It's all of a sudden we don't decide, I, I want to slander this person. All of these well-worn paths and patterns, they start somewhere, a slight, an offense, a betrayal from someone you thought you could trust. At that very moment, you have a choice. Will I allow these hard feelings to grow? Not just allow, will I feed them? 
Will I make sure that they grow? Will I replay the insensitive comment in my head over and over and over? Will I fantasize about different ways to hurt them like they hurt me? Man, if I had just thought to say this, I could have put them in their place. If they come at me again, this is what I'll say. Do you replay those ideas and fantasies in your mind and your heart over and over? If so, then bitterness grows. You you may not be a full-blown malice, but the bitterness is growing. These sins are bad enough described in, in this way, but the risk for the Christian is this. A heart that is given over to this hardened patterns and paths of bitterness, that heart has very little to no room for forgiveness. So what do we do? We hold up the mirror of scripture. We need to see God and we need to see our own hearts. We need to see where confession and repentance needs to take place. Because here, here's, oh, here's the sneaky part of this. The The frustrating part of this for us as as Christians is that that, that Paul is clearly saying, put all, all of these sins, every single one of them, remove every trace of these sins from yourself. And instead of obeying that, what we'd rather do is take the people who make us feel that way and remove them from our lives. And that's not our call. We're We're not to remove These people that we are to forgive, brothers and sisters, one another, we're to remove the sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ah, but it's so much easier. Seth, you've offended me. I'm just going to ignore you. It's just just easier. Ben, you've ticked me off. I'm just going to keep my distance. Or what I should be doing is confessing and repenting of my bitterness and pursuing brothers and sisters. So where do you need to plead with the Holy Spirit for help. When and around who do you find yourself with more bitterness than kindness? Where have you pushed away fellow Christians that have been insensitive to you, have offended you? Bitterness grows when we don't uproot it. When that happens, we begin to look for reasons to justify our anger and offense with others. Rather than seeking ways to be compassionate and kind to them. So I'd ask you, whether it's family, at home, over lunch, friends, at at growth group, be willing to share this week those places that you're tempted to just stew in your anger. You just, you just want to sit in it because it's, it's comfortable. It's known. It's a pattern. Where do those patterns show up? Drag it, Ephesians 5, from the darkness into the light. Discuss it with your brothers and sisters. Be willing to share so you can be held accountable and encouraged. Where are you currently justifying your resentment towards another brother or sister in Christ? This is what it looks like to grow up into Christ, putting off what's evil and putting on what is good through the power of the Spirit. So remember, 
This is a command to the church at Ephesus. Paul is instructing believers how to make every effort to maintain the unity the Spirit has given us. The command is not just to put off, but to put on. So what are we to put on? Let's, let's look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So there's a risk. Sometimes we hear words like kindness or tender-hearted, which means pity and compassion. The risk is bringing our own meaning into the words. We hear kindness and we reduce it to just being polite. It's kind of nice, sort of that, that Southern way of, no, before you, ma'am. Oh, I've been kind. No, no, that, that is a light view of kindness. Or we take compassion and we, we reduce it to just feelings of, of sympathy with no action. But verse 32 gives us specifics, not only on definition, but action. Compassion and kindness in action is forgiveness. So let's, let's start here with God in Christ forgave us. Let's, let's define forgiveness. Most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. Neil Anderson wrote that, completely agree. Most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. So we need to look at verse 32. We need to soak in it. We need to wring out every bit of truth that we can find in it and apply it to our lives. So this word forgiveness, it's defined as, as pardon, given freely in order to graciously restore. This word forgive in this verse is unusual. It's powerful. It's, it's more than the, the typical word in the Greek, this, this word also has an idea of unceasing and unwearying forgiveness, never tiring, never stopping forgiveness. The question comes to many of our minds, comes to my mind, how? How? We're going to see that God in Christ forgave us in both a kind way and compassionate way. And then we're going to talk about what forgiveness is and is not. So as God in Christ forgave you, we start there because the truth empowers the obedience. His forgiveness of us is the foundation of how we forgive one another. So how did God in Christ forgive us? If you can back up one slide for me, we'll, we'll see this. Look back at Ephesians 1, 7. I'll read it to you. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That redemption, that means, brother, sister, you were bought. You were purchased. There, there was a cost to you. And part of that was the debt of forgiving your sin. Forgiveness always has a cost. He forgave our sins according to the riches of his grace. So why did God do this? It's in, it's in 2.7, Ephesians 2.7. So that in the coming ages, meaning forever and ever, God might show the immeasurable, never-ending, waves on a beach, riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God is kind. I, I want you to think for, for a second, the, the, the kindest thing that, that any human has ever done to you or done for you. 
from an eternal perspective, this is the most kind action that has ever been taken on your behalf. When Christ paid with his life to redeem you. So a key here, we see a key. How do we forgive as God and Christ forgave us? We have to understand the horror of our own sin. And we have to see the immeasurable kindness of God in his gift of forgiveness. Here it is, a light view of our own sin will equate to a light view of needing to forgive others. If we don't see what we owed and what was paid, it doesn't even make sense to, to try and forgive Forgiveness always has a cost. Do you know how to tell what something is worth its value? You see what it costs. That's how you know. So what did it cost God to forgive you through Christ and adopt you to himself? What did the atonement cost to bring that at one with God to you by Jesus? What did it cost? Nothing less than the precise, holy wrath poured out on his son. Not one drop more and not one drop less than what was required to pay for your sin. That's how we know the value. That's how we know the cost. Each one of your sins was forgiven past, present, and future. With his blood, Jesus even paid for your sin of failing to forgive. So then, would you withhold forgiveness from a brother or sister when Christ paid with his life to freely give forgiveness to you? That, that's a hard limit. Are we somehow better than God? He, he purchased this and we would withhold it from one another. May it never be so. Well, sometimes for believers, it's easier to get our heads around being forgiven when we first came to Christ. We first repented of our sins and placed our faith in him. But what do we do about our ongoing sin? The fact that we keep on sinning and we keep on needing forgiveness. I don't know about you, but sometimes as a Christian, as a sinner and a saint, I feel very needy. I need his forgiveness. And, and if that's true, how does that impact how we are to forgive one another? Here's the compassion, the tenderheartedness. And our problem is we place our unclear thoughts and our sinful motives on to God. We think he's like us. Remember this concept of unwearying and unceasing. Sometimes we picture God as just weary of us, wishing we could just stop bothering him. Maybe we think when we sin, he, he only forgives us because he kind of has to since he's God and all. Maybe we imagine his forgiveness as, as begrudging and with a coolness and a distance, uh, just waiting for us to mess up again. We know that and just kind of picture Jesus sort of poking the Holy Spirit and being like, are you okay? I know you've had to pay a lot of attention to art lately. He's been grieving you significantly. God is not like us. We, we read that, that God can't even look upon sin and we think, well, he's never, ever looking in my direction. 
God is not like us. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of his character. Thinking that God is tired of us, it's a gross minimization of our union with Christ. I'm so thankful this passage doesn't say God forgives you in Christ like we forgive each other. Begrudging, cool, distant, testing, just making sure that this thing's going to take. That's not what he does. Let me ask you a question. Think on this for a minute. If you are in Christ, united to him with access to the Father, what do you think your current sin actually elicits from the heart of Jesus? What does it elicit from him? You think wrath, distance, or punishment? Romans 5.20, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And brothers and sisters, grace is not a thing. Grace is a person. So when you sin, Christ actually moves closer to you in tender-hearted compassion. When you sin, this actually evokes pity from Jesus, and he comes near to you. In his book, The Heart of Christ, written by the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, we find this remarkable truth about what God does when a believer sins. He is so far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yet his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. He hates not the child, but the disease. Father God, if we could get this, if the Holy Spirit would fall on us and we could get this, he actually loves you and moves closer to you in your misery and in your weakness. I love how Dane Ortland puts it. If, if you're a part of Christ's own body, your, sin, your sins evoke his deepest heart, his compassion and pity. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. Praise God for the glorious comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ for sinners. That's really good. <laughs> I'm so thankful. So then, as the full weight falls on us of, of what it means that God in Christ not only forgave us at our conversion, but forgives us now, forgives us still, moves to us to forgive. That's got to change how we forgive one another. Brothers and sisters, what would the church look like if by the power of the Holy Spirit, when a fellow Believer sins against you, your response was not anger and malice and distance, but it was nearness and compassion and kindness. What if we move towards each other in forgiveness by the same love that Christ moves towards us in our sin? What if we saw each other as we truly are? Imperfect, adopted sons and daughters who need compassion and kindness and forgiveness rather than bitterness and distance. Here's the example and the power for forgiveness coming to us in Christ. This means something radical. First, how do we apply this? It's radical and practical. It means that both the Christian seeking forgiveness and the believer giving forgiveness, you're free. 
in Christ, we can now be free from that half-hearted, hedge my bet, sorry if you were offended type of non-apology. You've all either given this or, or heard this, that I'm sorry if you were offended. I'm sorry, but this is what I was thinking. Any ifs and buts, you just, we need to put those away from us. When we're actually asking someone for forgiveness, we have the freedom to be specific, to lay it all out there, to be honest about our sin. Because the believer you're asking to forgive you has been forgiven his sins by God in Christ. He can now turn away from half-hearted, throw it in your face, I'm going to bring it up every time we get in a fight type of half-baked, not real forgiveness. He's free to fully open, be open with this forgiveness that he's giving, unwearying, unceasing in that forgiveness. In Christ, you can fully ask for and fully offer forgiveness to one another. If this is ground that, that Satan has gained, this is where we take it back. As Christians, this is where we regain that ground. So when we think about forgiveness, let's, let's talk about what it is and what it is not. We need to consider this because this is another word where we bring in traditions, we bring in our own thoughts and ideas about forgiveness. Forgiveness is a response to repentance and a position of the heart. How did God in Christ forgive you? Legitimate question. How did God in Christ forgive you? You repented. You confessed your sin, and you repented, and he forgave you. Jesus in Luke 17, 3 says to the disciples, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Like the guard seeking forgiveness from Corey Tim Boom, forgiveness should involve repentance on behalf of the offender. He or she should repent. But this does not mean for us as believers that we have permission to hold a grudge against someone until they repent. That's a path to bitterness. Remember first being so impacted by the, by the teaching and peacemaker and learning that there is a transaction to forgiveness. The, the offender must repent that was so freeing for me because I've been told for years, you need to forgive your dad. You need to forgive your dad. You need to forgive your dad for abandoning you. There was something off about that. So then to, to learn that I, I couldn't because he had not actually asked for forgiveness. There's freedom in that place. But then I took that freedom to justify my own, my own bitterness to go, well, He's not asked forgiveness so I can still hate his guts. <laughs> He's not completed the transaction so I can hang on to this bitterness a little bit or a lot. So it's a heart position and it's a response to repentance. We ask the Holy Spirit to keep our hearts soft with kindness and compassion, ready to forgive the person who sinned against us. Our desire so often is vindication for our own name. I want them to know I was right, that I was hurt. When our desire should be that God might open their eyes and grant them repentance and lead them to life. And you could tell you're not in the right place with this. 
If you're sort of pulling for the person who sinned against you to not repent so you can sort of justify your own anger. It's a place of, of we need to watch for that. Forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. Regrettably, you may have been taught at some point in your Christian experience that even in cases of abuse and neglect, that forgiving means that you give the offender complete access to you. That means that that you now should be trusting them and and giving them access to hurt you. No. This this quote here that we're going to show, it's lengthy. I don't care because it's important. (laughs) I, I want us to read it together. If all those words, you're like, oh, it's too much, just let me read it to you. Forgiveness does not mean that you are to make it easy for the offender to hurt you again. They may hurt you again. That's their decision. But you must set boundaries on your relationship with them. The fact that you establish rules to govern how and to what extent you interact with this person in the future does not mean that you fail to sincerely and truly forgive them. I love this sentence. True love never aids and abets the sin of another. Know that from 1 Corinthians 13, 6, that that love rejoices in truth, not wrongdoing. The, The offender may himself be offended that you set parameters on your relationship to prevent them from doing further harm. They may even say, how dare you? This just proves that you didn't mean it when you said that you forgave me. Don't buy into that manipulation. Forgiveness does not mean that you become a helpless and passive doormat for continual sin and abuse. Brothers and sisters, there's a world of difference between the occasional storm clouds of anger or or harsh words spoken in in a typical argument versus an oppressive climate in a relationship that's filled with anger, that's filled with clamor, that's filled with bitterness and malice. So if you need help discerning the difference between Is this an occasional storm? Is this an oppressive climate? There are elders, growth group leaders who want to help, want to pray with you, want to seek wisdom with you in these situations. Forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not minimizing. Forgiveness is a choice. Perhaps you've been in that situation where you thought, if I forgive this sin... I'm basically telling the person that did this to me that it didn't even matter. It was not a big deal. So I'm going to withhold my forgiveness because this thing that they did is not small. True forgiveness is actually the opposite. You are actively choosing to trust God with how he will right the wrongs, how he will bring justice. So then we can look sin in the face and call it what it is. To never say again, oh, it's nothing, don't worry about it. It's never, not, nothing. (laughs) Call it what it is, and we choose to forgive at the same time. At times, though, we can subtly communicate this, this message of sin maybe not being that big of a deal by telling somebody, we mean well, but we say, you know what, you just need to forgive and forget. You just need to forgive and forget. And the person who suffered is hearing, I can't talk to this, I can't talk to this person. They have no idea what what I've actually been through. We mean to encourage, 
but we say forgive and forget. Well, forgiveness is not forgetting. But you may say, hold on, God says in Jeremiah 31, 34, that he chooses to no longer remember the sins is what's happening there. It's a metaphor that we try and apply literally. It, it is a beautiful fulfillment of the new covenant that God is going to bring people to himself, forgive their sins, and choose to remember them no more. God doesn't forget. He's omniscient. So I want you to think about it like this. Here's another way we know that God does not forget. When Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Why? One, so Thomas would believe. But why did Jesus still have the scars from the crucifixion on his glorified body? Because those scars will serve as an eternal reminder of exactly what Jesus did in order to forgive our sins. Those scars in the new heavens and new earth will be the cause of holy sobriety and inexpressible joy for eternity. What do those scars represent? They represent love. They represent sacrificial love. All love at its heart is sacrificial. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is an act of love toward another and worship of God. And when you forgive, you are not only extending that sacrificial love of Christ to another, you're personally experiencing the healing power of his love for you. Here's what I mean. Sometimes the difference between an open, infected wound and a scar is the difference between the poison of unforgiveness and the healing that comes through forgiving one another. Unforgiveness, open, infection, wound, forgiveness, healing. Scars, though, they remain. So we have a choice when we've been wronged. Will you choose to let it poison you? Or by the power of the Holy Spirit given to you, will you choose to submit that wrong to the Lord as an act of worship? We may bear scars our entire lives from the wounds that have been inflicted by others and at the same time be able to forgive them and not be defined by those scars. Do you know why? Your scars do not have the last word. His do. That's why. It is possible for you to grieve and forgive because the man of sorrows died on the cross. It is possible to grieve because we worship the one who has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. It is possible to forgive because he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took your sin, he took my sin, and he nailed it to the cross, and he canceled it. But he didn't stop there. 
He didn't just cancel our debt. He brought us to himself. So then, out of his love, we can lament what has been lost and at the same time be free to never be defined by that loss because we're defined by Christ. Consider that the glorious truth of the gospel is this. You are not defined by what has happened to you. You are not defined even by what you've done to others. The glorious truth of the gospel is you are not defined by your feelings or your circumstances or your grief or your sin. The glorious truth of the gospel is united to Christ by faith. You are defined by the love of the Father, the cross of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. The truth of the gospel and the truth of this passage is you have been set free from the bitter grave of unforgiveness because God in Christ is your living hope. He's forgiven you and he will continue to move toward you in forgiveness until your last breath when faith becomes sight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of of your word. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would expose in our hearts places where there are these hardened paths of of anger and, and bitterness. We pray that your spirit would would till that soil up. Father, if there are places where my brothers and sisters have resisted asking someone for forgiveness or resisted offering forgiveness, I pray that you would help us see the truth of this passage, that that you forgave us in Christ at great cost to yourself. The life, the blood, and the death of Jesus Christ But Father, we thank you that there is hope because of the resurrection, because of the ascension, because the power of Jesus Christ as he sits at your right hand. Death has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. Bitterness and unforgiveness have been defeated. So then help us, Spirit, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Help us. We see it. We read it, we hear it, help us believe. Change our hearts through your word and by your spirit. We love you, Father. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.